Hi folks, before we get started today, I've got a quick announcement to make. As of this month, Nudge has been accepted as part of the HubSpot Creator Cohort. It's a brilliant, exciting, huge milestone for the show. As many of you know, I've been running Nudge independently for three years now without any support and I'm really happy to be accepted onto this cohort because it means I'll get a lot of help and resources from HubSpot. For you listeners, this means two things. The first thing is that you will hear one ad per show, around the middle of the show for about 60 seconds. And the second thing is that hopefully you will get access to higher quality Nudge episodes more often with even better guests and heaps more benefits. Just so you know, there are some brilliant other shows on the HubSpot Creator Cohort, shows like Blissful Prospecting, Content is Profit, Finding Founders and Unsexy. These are all business marketing shows, so if you like Nudge, you'll probably like those. So go check them out and all of the other shows on the cohort at hubspot.com forward slash creators. Anyway, on to the show. Hello, I'm Phil Agnew and you are listening to Nudge, the marketing science podcast. Now, why are you, you? Is it because of your genes or is it because of your experiences? Are you shaped by your DNA or your upbringing? In other words, are we formed by nature or nurture? To help answer this question, I am joined again on Nudge by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa is among the top 1% of most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. Her book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, is a brilliant book that explains how our brains work in layman's terms. It's popular science at its very best. If you missed the previous Nudge episode with Lisa about debunking myths about the brain, do make sure to head back and give it a listen. Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's get down to it. What is more important in defining who we are? Is it nature or nurture? I asked Lisa. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Sure. 
it's certainly fun. You know, philosophers have been debating where, you know, what, what makes a human, what makes a human mind human, you know, what, what determines our decisions? Is it, is it nature or is it nurture? You know, in modern day, we would say, is it our genes or is it learning what we've experienced? But, you know, this, this goes all the way back to 16th, 17th, 18th century debates about um, where knowledge comes from, for example. Is it, is it, are you born with it or, or do you learn it? So Rousseau, Kant, you know, these are the, these are people who debated these kinds of things. And the modern day debate is, is genes versus environment, genetics versus learning. And it turns out that entire question is just the wrong question to ask. It's just an illusory question because humans have the kind of genes that make learning necessary to finish wiring a brain and developing a body. So genes, you know, we have the kind of nature that requires nurture. We have the kind of genes that require learning in order to have a neurotypical brain. A little infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that is waiting for wiring instructions from the world and from your body. And if we took your brain and miraculously could stick it in somebody else's body, you wouldn't be able to see because that body would, you know, it would take a while for your brain to adjust to the distance between the eyes and the, the shape of your ear and the, the length of your limbs. And if you don't believe me, I mean, the data are what they are, but just I mean, for anybody who's ever been through adolescence and had their limbs grow longer than their brain could adjust, you know, could adjust to. And so they're gangly and like bumping into things. Or, you know, when I was pregnant, when I was pregnant, I was continually bumping things with my belly because it took me a while to readjust my sense of personal space because my brain just hadn't hadn't adjusted to it yet. You know, it, it, it had to learn anew where the boundaries of my body were. And these are necessary, they're not optional. And so if you remove the, the nurture part and you just have the genes, what you get is profound disability. Now, I just want to reiterate this one line from Lisa. Humans have the kind of genes that require learning. We have the kind of nature that requires nurture. In other words, our brains require nurture to develop. Nature requires nurture. This isn't an opinion, it's fact. So the whole nature versus nurture debate is pretty much null and void. To help highlight this, Lisa shares an example from 1960s Romania. Unfortunately, we, we know uh, about this through a series of sort of natural experiments, like not experiments that anybody would ever do because they're completely unethical, um, but as you mentioned, Phil, you know, in the 1960s in Romania, there were laws passed that prevented people from using birth control um, because the government really wanted uh, Romania to become an economic power. And the, the belief at the time was the way to do that was to um, make sure that people had a lot of babies. And what ended up happening was there were so many people having so many babies that they couldn't they couldn't care for properly 
that the babies were warehoused in um in orphanages and the babies were you know fed and watered i mean like their their physical needs were not in all cases but in many cases their physical needs were taken care of but their social needs the the social nurturing the the social inputs that are necessary for a human brain to develop normally talking to a baby cuddling a baby singing to a baby touching the baby's skin and interacting with the baby these kinds of things didn't happen um there are completely heartbreaking photographs of these babies just sitting in like really impoverished environments in cribs you know just lined up like little um, portable prison cells and these uh, children developed smaller bodies smaller brains brains that um um not wired in a neurotypical way they had profound they have profound um disabilities in terms of their their language development in terms of their you know ability to control themselves and um regulate their behavior so some of these kids were rescued um in in ch- early childhood and you know were put into um foster homes or adopted and made some strides so some of these um problems could be reversed but past a certain age it's not reversible this is a really heartbreaking story and lisa walks through it in a little bit more detail in her book she shares how studies run with these children as they grew up showed that the children had problems learning language problems concentrating resisting distractions and issues controlling themselves clearly nurture is a vital element to anyone's upbringing our brains simply aren't wired to develop properly without it and i'll just go one step further here and say that um the same thing is true about childhood poverty so you know a little brain is not a miniature adult brain it's a brain under construction and it needs to have those construction materials and poverty the conditions of poverty prevent infants and young children from receiving the kind of input from the physical and social worlds that they require in order to develop optimally and you may have whatever opinion that you have about the morality of that about the morality of poverty about you know who's to blame and who's responsible and you can debate that till the cows come home but what you can't debate is that poverty affects the development of human brains in ways that are largely irreversible and what this means is that you know you can take a kid who grew up in poverty and you can as an adolescent you can or an adult you can put them in an enriched environment and you can increase their capacity to um perform whatever you know whatever task it is that you want them to perform but they they'll never achieve what they might have achieved if their brains had been developing optimally in optimal circumstances and so if you're a business leader if you're somebody who cares about industry and business potential and things like that you should care about this because this is a colossal waste of human capital just a colossal waste of human capital it's a i mean i personally i'm taking now you know my my scientific hat off now and i'm just talking to you as a person i also think it's a moral tragedy but you don't have to share my opinion 
you could just look at the evidence and say, well, you know, if you're somebody, you know, who cares about competitiveness in the in the workplace or in industry, you should care about, you know, this is the next generation of brains is your what you're going to build your or keep your industry empire functioning on. And so you should care. In science, we don't like to use the F word. Fact. It's a very scary word for us, right? Because findings are always contextual and what you observe is always probabilistic and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But this is as close to a fact as you could probably get. You'll occasionally hear experts talking about lifting people out of poverty through education and support. The point Lisa's putting across shows that that's just not possible, or at least that's the wrong way to address the problem. We shouldn't look at poverty as something that we can help someone escape. We should eradicate it in the first place, because studies repeatedly show that the detrimental effects poverty has on the human brain is in many ways largely irreversible. But I mean, I guess, Phil, what I'm saying is that it directly stems from the idea that nature versus nurture it's not even a question. It's just so wrong. It's just not even the right way. It is the way that everybody frames it, but it's really, well, not everybody, but like most people are still thinking in that way, but it's really not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it from a scientific standpoint is what kind of nurture is necessary for nature to blossom? I think that's a better way to, to, to really put it. This got me thinking. We all need nurture, there's no doubt about it, and the combination of nature and nurture develops us into who we are today. But do we all need the same type of nurture? Do all of our brains need the same support and experiences to develop? I asked Lisa. You know, when it comes to any creature or any species, you know, variation is the norm. So we we have different alleles of different genes and and those are important. So what it, what it means really, Phil, is that based on your particular set of genes, what's optimal nature, what's, sorry, what's the, so based on your particular nature, your particular set of, you know, the alleles of your genes, what's optimal nurture for you might not be optimal nurture for me. I mean, we both probably need uh, sleep and we both need to be hydrated and we both need to not have like extreme temperature changes and we both, you know, and you know, all little kids need to um, have their physical needs tended and they need to feel safe. Um, but there's a lot of variability that is permitted in what that looks like. And the optimal conditions for one um, child may not be the optimal conditions for another child, but they're not, but poverty is not, is not optimal for any child. To sum up, variation of some sort is needed during brain development. You'll need to adapt based on the person. Not every child is motivated by chocolate in the same way that not every adult is motivated by financial bonuses. But all of us have a level of nature that we need in order to develop. And if that isn't met, then the negative effects are largely irreversible. To finish up, I asked Lisa about another point in her book. This was a point about how your perception alters what you experience. In the book, Lisa shares how your experiences are totally dependent on your preconceived perception and how two people can experience the same thing and come away with very different views. Now, I don't do a great job of explaining this, but fortunately Lisa does. Here's Lisa talking through how perception alters experience. You can take 
you know, two glasses of white wine and um, add tasteless, odorless color to one of them to make them look red and have wine experts, you know, sommeliers taste both glasses and they'll tell you all kinds of things they taste that distinguishes the two glasses. Whereas if you take novices, they'll taste them and tell you they taste the same because in fact they are the same. And so what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that uh, everything you experience is in your head. So when you see, you don't see with your eyes, you see with your brain, you need your eyes. But even people who go blind later in life can still conjure images in their brain. You hear with your brain, you don't hear with your ears. If you lose the ability, if you're if you lose cells in your cochlea and you start to go deaf, you might develop tinnitus. What is tinnitus? It's your brain conjuring sounds from memory, basically. It's like phantom limb syndrome. So your experience of yourself in the world is in your brain. If you take your heart own heartbeat with your hand, with your fingers, you're experiencing the the beating of your heart in your brain, not in your body. Emotions aren't in your body, right? Trauma isn't in your body. Um, the body doesn't keep score of anything. The brain keeps score. The body is the scorecard. That's the first important point. The second important point is that you don't react to anything. You predict. To you, it feels like you see something and you want it or you don't want it. You maybe, you know, you see something, you evaluate it, you 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 make a very thoughtful decision or you make a very impulsive decision. But the idea is that you're reacting to the things that are presented to you in the world. That's not how brains work. That's how we experience it. But that's not how brains actually work. Brains predict. And they predict based on past experience. So, you know, when you're in conditions where you can't predict very well, I mean, you don't have to have experiences from the past that are identical to uh, the present, but they just have to be similar enough. So your brain can do something called conceptual combination. It can take bits and pieces of the past and combine them in new ways. And that's how you can, um, you know, experience something completely novel that you've never experienced before. And then if your brain takes in that prediction error, that is all the sense data it didn't predict, um, it can use that information the next time to predict a little more efficiently. And we have a special name for taking in prediction error. We call it learning. That's what learning is. Learning is when your brain can't predict. And so there's information there or the absence of information where it's expected. And the brain learns that. And then it has that information available to predict better the next time. And so what that means is that in a sense, your brain is always cultivating your past in order to determine who you will be in the future. Because every new thing that you expose yourself to, every new experience that you cultivate for yourself in this moment becomes part of your past that will be used to predict at a future moment. You don't react to anything you predict. Brains predict based on past experience. Now that is why red wine actually tastes different for sommeliers than it does for you and me. It's why Starbucks really does taste different to a Seattle local 
than it does to a Parisian. It's why Harley-Davidson can look outdated and embarrassing to some, and yet the pinnacle of travel to others. This makes it difficult for us marketers. Our audience all have vastly different experience and all perceive things in vastly different ways. And even well-known biases won't work for everyone in the same way. Social proof, the bias that shows we tend to follow the actions of others, won't always work on everyone. People who view themselves as individualistic might take pride in doing the opposite of what the group is doing. Anchoring, a bias that shows how we cling to a reference point if information is scarce, might not work for someone who doesn't trust authority. All of this is to say that in marketing, constant learning is vital. Never assume you know all there is to know about your audience, or that the strategy and tactics you're using today are guaranteed to succeed tomorrow. The world is naturally chaotic, and usually more chaotic than we think. So take precautions and spend as much time learning as you can. Speak to your customers, run tests to challenge your hypotheses, and read up around the subject to learn more. This won't guarantee success, but it's definitely better than the alternative. I'm an actor, not a business leader. But if I were, I'd run the biggest pirate enterprise to ever sail the high seas. Ahoy! And then I'd get HubSpot as my CRM platform to connect all my ships across the globe. Because acquiring new customers doesn't come easy. But HubSpot makes it easy for teams to create a more personalized customer experience. And then I'd climb to the top of the crow's nest and shout things like, batten down the customer reports! But again, I'm not a pirate CEO. I'm a very serious actor. Connect your people, your customers, and your business at HubSpot.com. Okay, folks, that is all we have time for today. I want to give Lisa a huge thank you for joining me on not one, but two episodes of Nudge. She's a brilliant person to chat with and a brilliant writer as well. So if you enjoyed these shows, do check out her latest book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. There's a link to the book in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with me about the show, then reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just search for Phil Agnew and you'll find me on there. Finally, if you haven't already, please do sign up for the Nudge newsletter. Every other Monday, I share an example of a nudge that I've seen in the wild. The emails are short, they're concise. You won't have to spend an hour reading them with your Monday morning coffee. And if you don't like them, you can unsubscribe immediately. I will not spam you. But I'm pretty sure you'll like these emails because I'm getting lots of really positive feedback from, from the many of you who have signed up. So click the link in the show notes or head to nudgepodcast.com where you can click newsletter to sign up there. All right. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge.